0: they vaccinate an elderly group in a given country very quickly with a new booster, well, immediately there's an immediate uh, 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 peak in in excess all-cause mortality that surges up right in response to that booster rollout. And this is seen quite clearly everywhere that you have these boosters being injected into elderly people. And so we saw this in Australia, we saw it in in Israel, we saw it in Chile, we saw it in Peru, everywhere where you had good data where you could actually see this, it came out very clearly. And so that allowed us to quantify how deadly is an injection by age, depending on your age. And we were the first to do this. And we showed that the toxicity of the vaccine increases exponentially with your age. So meaning that for every four or five years of age, additional age, your risk of dying per injection doubles every four or five years. So it shoots up exponentially like that. So by the time you get into the 90 plus age group, you're looking at one death per 20 injections. So that it's, it's a 5% risk, and so it's massive. And what this showed was that the policy to uh, prioritize the elderly for injection is criminally negligent.
1: We are so honored to have Denny Rancourt joining us this evening. Denny has Bachelor of Science, Master's of Science, and Ph.D. degrees in physics, and he has held postdoctoral research positions at prestigious institutions in France and the Netherlands. He was a physics professor and lead scientist at the University of Ottawa for 23 years, where he attained the highest academic rank of tenured full professor. He is currently a co-director of Correlation Research in the Public Interest, which is a registered nonprofit organization that conducts independent science, scientific research on topics of public interest. He's a sought-after speaker and media commentator, and his medical, political, and social theory art- articles and interviews are published in many respected venues. Will you all please help me welcome Denny Rancourt to the Empower Hour this evening. Denny, welcome to the Empower Hour this evening. Denny, welcome. We're so pleased to have you on the show.
0: Hello, I'm happy to be here with you. Thanks for inviting me and I'm looking forward to telling you all about my research and so on.
2: Yeah. Thank you, Danny. It's so good to see you. Uh, That's been a while. We were on some uh, meetings with Ted Kuntz some years ago and with Rocco. And uh, I don't think I've seen you personally since then, although we've been in contact. But I am just so grateful for the information uh, that you have made public, for the research that you're doing. And uh, really what I'd like to do right now is hand the floor over to you and you tell us more about that.
0: Oh, my. Okay. Well, as soon as the COVID pandemic was declared by the World Health Organization back in March of 2020, and it was all over the media, I thought to myself, is this real? I mean, it sounds like there should be people lying dead in the street, and I don't see any. So the first thing I did was to go and look at actual mortality data. So not just what the MDs and the hospitals are telling us, but the government has a legal obligation to register all actual deaths, irrespective of cause, so this is so-called all cause mortality, just counting deaths, and so that's the kind of data I went to because you can't fudge it, and it's not uh you know um, polluted with bias in relation to what the cause was. and so I looked at that data and I immediately saw that there was nothing happening. In any of the countries that had data and that was putting out data quickly, there was virtually no anomaly except a very unusual sharp peak in some hotspots, which was uh, all synchronous with the announcement of the pandemic. So it looked like uh, deaths were a response to a political announcement, not anything else. And so I wrote a first paper that was published way back on the 2nd of June, 2020. In which I explained that the mortality statistics were incompatible with the idea of a spreading disease or pandemic it didn't It didn't add up, and it disproved that that this could be the cause of any excess deaths and so uh, that paper was put out there, and then we just kept working on it. I uh, started collaborating with more people, and between that first paper and the present we've written more than 30 papers about COVID-related matters, especially all-cause mortality. And so by looking at this kind of data very carefully as a function of time by week or by month and by age group and by country or by state in the United States or province in Canada, we just examined all the data that is out there and we were able to as, as much as you can prove something in science, we were able to prove that this couldn't possibly be understood or interpreted as being due to a viral respiratory disease. There is no way. It was incompatible with that. So it, it, it was contrary to it, because if you believe the narrative of this spreading disease, it's impossible that the mortality would refuse to cross borders between countries, for example. So there are many countries where there's absolutely no excess mortality that is neighboring with a, a large land border with another country that has significant excess mortality, but excess mortality that is due to how the, the vulnerable citizens are being treated in those jurisdictions. So we, we started seeing this, we started seeing that the, this their story doesn't make sense and the only way to understand all of this data is to say one This is not compatible with the new pathogen that all of a sudden came onto the planet and that is spreading. We disprove that. Um, Two, every time we see excess mortality, it's due to something that was done to the population, especially vulnerable groups. So at at the very first, at the beginning, there were these large peaks and hotspots that were New York City, uh, Paris, some large hospitals in Paris, northern Italy, Madrid, even Copenhagen. And uh, these were due to uh, very aggressive hospital treatments. Generally, one of the big causes was novel treatments for anyone who appeared to maybe have a respiratory condition, uh, was immediately diagnosed as possibly being uh, affected by this new disease, and therefore was treated too aggressively with novel treatments that had not been sufficiently validated or tested And they really killed a lot of people that way. So um, every time we saw a bump, a peak, uh, it was due to what was being done. It could be the lockdowns of care homes. It could be the lockdowns of people where uh, mentally disabled are institutionalized. It could be all kinds of things like that. But those were the causes of the deaths. So nobody, virtually no young people were dying in this period. There there was excess death of young groups, but but it's not as large as what was happening to truly vulnerable and elderly people. So that's how we came to understand what was going on. And for example, in the United States, when we studied state by state, we saw that the excess death in the period of COVID correlated exactly perfectly with poverty in the state. So the more poverty you had, the more excess deaths you had. It was clear. And it wasn't just a correlation. It's what we call a proportionality. So in other words, in a state that had no poverty, you would have had no excess deaths. So this is not, uh, you know, a virus doesn't choose to kill only poor people. If it's it's a new virus, uh, supposedly, that you have no immune protection against. It doesn't select to kill only disabled people, elderly people, uh, vulnerable people. It doesn't do that. And and poor people and people who are obese, these are the people who mostly died in the places where there was a lot of excess death, such as in the United States. And then when you look at Canada, the death rate uh, or the death rate, the the, the excess mortality that occurred in Canada during the same period was virtually nothing. So there's this huge thousands of kilometers of land border, two of the biggest exchange partners in the world, and this supposed virulent pathogen refused to cross the border into Canada. So it just made no sense whatsoever. So at one point in our research, we drew a map of Europe, and we showed in color uh, different intensities of excess death. And there were countries that had that were white on the map, that had no excess deaths, and other countries right beside them that had large amounts of excess deaths where they were doing certain things that were not being done in the countries that didn't have any. So, for example, at the beginning of the pandemic, Germany did not use those aggressive protocols in hospitals and had no excess death at the beginning of the pandemic whatsoever. So this is how we've come to understand it, and I've come to a firm conclusion that there was no particularly virulent pathogen and that all the excess deaths were due to uh, response uh, and also lack of treatment because they refused to prescribe antibiotics in the Western world. Antibiotic prescriptions went down by 50% across the Western world at the same time that because of all the stress and everything, people were getting bacterial pneumonia. And bacterial pneumonia needs to be treated by antibiotics. And they were not prescribing them. So, There was a huge epidemic of bacterial pneumonia in the United States that correlated with these poor people who always get more bacterial pneumonia, getting it again and not being treated for it. So um, uh, these are the kinds of things that were happening. So therefore, the the lockdowns, especially of institutions, actually locking people down and preventing human contact and isolating them uh, when you're uh, mentally disabled. or or very elderly and you need that contact uh, uh, and, and, and the very aggressive treatments and then the refusing of treatment in the community of a lot of people who are getting bacterial infections so that combination of things caused all of the deaths until the vaccines rolled out and then when the vaccines rolled out they, the vaccines, the injections contributed significantly to additional deaths on top of that okay So you have to understand that there are many, many countries in the world, and we showed this in great detail with many graphs and lots of examples, there are many, many countries in the world that had absolutely no detectable excess mortality when they declared the pandemic and for the first year of the pandemic until they rolled out the vaccines. And then there was a surge of mortality and we entered a new regime of high excess mortality that accompanied these vaccination campaigns. So that should tell you something that there are many jurisdictions that did not, were not overly aggressive uh, or didn't have as many very fragile people that could be killed by these aggressive measures, had no excess mortality until the vaccine was rolled out. And the first example that we saw of that that really convinced us that the vaccines were in fact deadly um, is India. So the first country that I wrote about in detail was India, because India is a case where there was, is is exactly a case like that. You cannot detect excess mortality in India until the vaccines were rolled out. And that's interesting because in India, the vaccines were rolled out about three months later than most other places, and there was still no excess mortality. But then when they rolled out the vaccine, they killed 3.7 million people in India. That's the excess mortality directly associated with the rollouts of the vaccines. They were very aggressive with the vaccines. The 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 Prime Minister of India called it a vaccine festival. He said we're going to vaccinate everyone. The government had a list of twelve comorbidities and they went after those people that had these comorbidities to vaccinate them. And they said everyone needs to participate in all the villages everywhere, go out and get the people who don't want to be vaccinated and make sure they get vaccinated. And there are many videos online of them going into places and people screaming and not wanting to be vaccinated and they hold them down and they vaccinate them against their will. So India was very aggressive and uh, you can quantify 3.7 million deaths directly due to this vaccine in India. So that was the, the case study that really convinced me that this was a real problem. And so then we went and looked at all the data we could where we had good data and we, and we kept seeing this repeatedly. What we saw was even in Western countries, we saw that there was um, a death rate or an attack rate from the vaccine that was approximately 0.05 or 0.1% in that range, meaning that uh, one in 2,000 all the way to one in 1,000, one in 800 injections will cause a death, all ages combined, okay? So it, it was definitely causing a thousand, it, it's a thousand times more deadly than what the CDC will admit, okay? Um, it's definitely causing this death, and we see this everywhere that we look. And more also equally importantly is that there are some countries that have such good data that you can look at what happened by age group. So you can look at when they, when they uh, target the elderly and they roll out a booster, let's say, well, as soon as you roll out that booster very quickly, they vaccinate an elderly group in a given country very quickly with a new booster. Well, immediately there is an immediate, uh, 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 peak in all, in excess all-cause mortality that surges up right in response to that booster rollout. And this is seen quite clearly everywhere that you have these boosters being injected into elderly people. And so we saw this in Australia, we saw it in, in Israel, we saw it in Chile, we saw it in Peru. Everywhere where you had good data where you could actually see this it came out very clearly. And so That allowed us to quantify how deadly is an injection by age, depending on your age. And we were the first to do this. And we showed that the toxicity of the vaccine increases exponentially with your age. So meaning that for every four or five years of age, additional age, your risk of dying per injection doubles every four or five years. So it shoots up exponentially like that. So by the time you get into the 90 plus age group, you're looking at one death per 20 injections. So that it's, it's a 5% risk. And so it's massive. And what this showed was that the policy to uh, prioritize the elderly for injection is criminally negligent. They did not have the data to develop that policy. They did not look at the fragile groups that are elderly and their comorbidities and their life conditions to see if, if you recommend this on all the elderly, how many people will it kill compared to uh, 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 not, you know, younger people of different age groups. They didn't do an analysis, a risk analysis by age group including the conditions that people really have at, at, at those ages. And therefore, when you rolled it out in the entire population, the kind of study that we do, we can see what actually happened. And what actually happened was something they should have foreseen, something they should have tested before they actually did it. And this means that the policy of injecting elderly in this way was wrong, dead wrong. And um, that's something that's a huge lesson that vaccination of the elderly, at least in this case, was tremendously more dangerous than vaccinating anybody else. Now, that doesn't mean that it wasn't dangerous to vaccinate children, teenagers, young adults, and so on. I mean, the, the myocarditis uh, conditions that develop are very real, and they're very dangerous, and the, the, the uh, vulnerability of the heart of everyone who gets this thing is very real. But in terms of numbers of death, which is what we look at, um, the main factor is age. As I said, it goes exponentially with age. So we have discovered and quantified all of these things in the last three or more years. And we've, as I said, we've written more than 30 reports on this. Um, I'll be talking at an international conference in Bucharest, Romania, this month, in, a, in about a week from now. Uh, we'll be talking in the parliament building, and there's many members of parliament who have invited us. Uh, that'll be an interesting conference. I'll get to see a lot of these people in person that I've been working with. Even my collaborators who live in different countries are going to show up there. Um, but we're trying to make politicians and the public aware That the actual fatal risk of these vaccines is a thousand times greater than governments are willing to admit. So that's that's been the nature of our work.
2: Well, thank you, uh, Denny, for going over that. I was making notes as you were speaking because um, you know this is such an incredible, incredibly important uh, show to have tonight. There's a lot of people that have been given a lot of information over the years, and it's been. called, you know, conspiracy theories and the rest of it. But you've come up with a tangible report uh, doing the research by country. Uh, One of the things that I've been seeing lately, though, you know, a lot of people will refer to it as an experimental uh, vaccine, but I don't think it was experimental at all. I I really do believe that this was, you know, a targeted offense against citizens that um, potentially they knew that it was going to be most harmful to the elderly and to the people with uh, compromised immune systems and disabilities and whatnot. How how do you feel about that?
0: Well, um, there's no doubt that the, 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 the main delivery technology is these cationic lipid nanoparticles. And there is no doubt that the cation lipids themselves are extremely toxic. Okay. There's animal studies that have demonstrated this amply. And that in itself, irrespective of what you might put in those nanoparticles, irrespective of what you might do in order to create what you might put into those nanoparticles, the nanoparticles themselves, these cation lipids, will damage cells and are very toxic. And if in some individuals they will be spread around the body. Uh, uh, so uh, that's the thing. In in all of this um kind of work, you you very quickly realize that the... Um uh, response is very, very different from individual to individual. And that's why um, you'll get a lot of deaths, but you'll also have a lot of people who will be multiply vaccinated and won't they they claim that they haven't suffered any health consequences. Okay. And that's normal because toxicity is like that. What the when we wrote our our latest paper we explain that you have to understand the vaccine as a toxic substance that was injected into your body so the, the nature of toxicity we know a lot about toxins and 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 being poisoned and overdoses and so on and the fact is it, the response the risk is very different from person to person and we know that it increases with age we know that from toxic toxicity studies so this should have been foreseen we knew that the cation lipids were toxic we know how toxicity works, and that it can be very different. And we went ahead and did it without without a proper testing, right. and so on. So uh, that's how I would see that. Um, now, you but you asked a more, I guess, a more political question about motivation and so on. And um, what my my view of that is that there is no doubt that the vaccine rollouts themselves, the vaccination campaign, which was global, uh, um was a military operation, and was um, decided and executed. And there was no government that was going to get in the way of that. It was just done. And yeah. I think the leading uh, nation, if you like, that really led this was the USA. It, now, Russia and China did follow with their own vaccines. But I, I, the way I understand that, and I've looked into the chronology and everything is that they saw that the U.S. was developing the capacity to inject whatever they want into everybody's arms. And they were not going to be in this dangerous world without that developing that capacity for themselves. So they needed to see if they could uh, coerce their own citizens to receive these vaccines and so on. Because I think the weapon is the, is the fact that you can inject what you want in people's arms, everybody's, in a military way very quickly, with under the pretext that it's for your health, and it's to protect you against this dangerous pathogen. So they have developed that from the from the propaganda side, from government cooperation, from all the institutions cooperating, all the scientists saying the right things, and everybody being convinced. And so they're able to actually roll out these dangerous injections. And the thing that but the thing that happened is that And I don't know if they foresaw this or not, but as you get into the more advanced boosters, it actually becomes more and more toxic. That's one of the results of our study. So um, I think it's understandable that people would start refusing the boosters and more injections more and more because they become more aware that more people suffer consequences, uh, especially among the elderly. So... um, It is natural that if you're um, injecting several times someone with a poison, that there's going to be more and more risk every time you do it. Because if your body hasn't repaired the damage from the first injection, then you're just adding more damage onto that. And so it becomes more dangerous as you as you put more in. That's just that's just general toxicity without getting into the, the details of how this vaccine was designed, you see and i think also in their minds in their thinking they have this dream that they can design genetically design something that will achieve the result that they want and uh and then they want to be able to deliver that into your body whenever they want mm-hmm. as a scientist i don't believe that that's easy to do and i don't think they've achieved it but this was a test run and this was the well, the part yeah. that they did achieve was to actually get it get the vaccination campaigns working, injecting everybody, irrespective of the risk, irrespective of the dangers, they actually made it work. But I personally don't believe that they can uh, genetically modify us to be susceptible to an environmental toxin or whatever, you know, I, I don't, I don't go that far in my understanding of what's going on. But irrespective of how far you want to go, it was very wrong, a a huge violation of our bodies, of our civil rights, of our political rights. It was massive. And this is definitely, there is no doubt now scientifically that these vaccines can cause death. There are a multitude of autopsy studies. They're they're coming out every week that show uh, organ damage on virtually every vital organ in your body. Uh, when people die, uh, soon after the vaccine and they do molecular characterization of the tissue under the microscope. And you can see that it was really caused by the vaccine. So this is, this is proven from an autopsy perspective, but we, we have proven it from a mortality statistics perspective. So we're able to quantify the impact at the population level and others have proven the mechanism in terms of your organs and so on. So it's it's a very dangerous product, yes.
2: Yeah, and, it is. And, and
0: also, you know, the other thing, Tanya, is in all of our studies, we could not find a single example in any country or state or province where the vaccine appeared to reduce mortality.
2: Well, that's exactly it, right? And so that's why, you know, I feel very strongly, and I, I believe probably everybody, you know, watching this program would agree that this was a somebody has said in the in, in, in the chat they're a military operation but it was it was partnered with a psychological military style uh, warfare right? Conditioning everybody first with fear and, uh, so that they'd be lining up to take the tests and then the jab and doing what was right. Uh, emotionally, uh, they were manipulating people do what's best for grandma. Your kids are toxic. Don't let them go near grandma. You got to get, get them the shot. I mean, it just came and it, it unfolded so strategically, but when you're also talking, you know, about the doses and the toxicity increasing, the more that people get the boosters, what I feel, and I said from the very onset when they were uh, just uh, getting the uh, injections going, when they were giving the jab, is that I be- believe that they had a placebo group, uh, a group that was uh, diluted, and then the real strength. Because if they had given everybody the, uh, you know, the intended jab with all the toxicities in it at, at, at once, there would have been people dropping like flies. And so you've got somebody, you know, who had blood clots. You've got somebody who had a heart attack. Oh, well, nobody's going to think about that. That's just, you know, an underlying problem that they had. And then you've got the Denmark uh, report that came out some months ago that confirmed that 4.2% of the batches were responsible for 71% of the adverse events. So it kind of goes in line, you know, with supporting uh, this strongly held theory.
0: Yes, we, well... I was critical of that study. I I wrote to the authors, and I was also publicly critical of that study. And the reason I was critical of the study is that you have to be very careful, and they didn't, they, they forgot a factor that's very important, which is some of these batches were primarily given to more elderly people. And so our work shows that you're going to kill elderly people exponentially more. So they didn't take age into consideration and we showed that when you do take age into consideration, there's no evidence statistically that there were bad batches or placebos, okay? So, I'm, I'm just putting it out there. I know that a lot of people have talked about these bad batches and the placebo effect and so on, but we have looked at it uh, more than once on the basis of the VARS data and on the basis of that new paper, and our own conclusion—I don't want to get into an argument—but our own conclusion is that there, sure, there are always impurities when you manufacture something, and but we don't. And there could have been very locally bad batches that went bad because of transportation and so on. Uh, although I don't know of any good studies of such cases, but overall, when you look at the overall, either the VARS data, the mortality data or how this study was done, uh, we our, our research group does not believe that there are bad batches or placebo. But that doesn't mean that this wasn't a military rollout. And it doesn't mean that they shouldn't have known that it was a toxic vaccine. And it doesn't, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. It's just that you, one has to be very careful because the people who have been talking about bad batches from the beginning. Well, first, they made some mistakes about not understanding that there were typos in the batch numbers and there, therefore, there were very few ba- uh, batches that were causing death but they were actually typo batches and then after that, they didn't take fully into account that the age factor. So when we when we looked at toxicity by batch by age, we saw that it was exponential just like it should be. So. I would take that with a grain of salt. You asked me the question, so I'm answering it, but I'm, I, I'm not aligned with those ideas. Let's put it that way.
2: Okay. Um, I want to yeah. ask you, uh, recently there was a report that came out that Health Canada has confirmed the presence of uh, DNA contamination in the Pfizer yes. jabs, and yes. that Pfizer had had um, what they would call, referred to as approved uh, vaccines, and then yet they ended up using uh, a different, I think it was referred to as uh, SV40, uh, I'm not quite sure what that was, uh, uh, yeah. I, I guess the makeup of to the delivery of the uh, jab and that that was causing right. uh, harms as well. So what do you know about that? Well,
0: I, there's no doubt that there that the vaccine, that the content of these nanoparticles was not their cartoon vision of what it should be. There's no doubt about that, that, you know, that the, the, it was not the pure mRNA that they designed to go in there. There's no doubt there was all kinds of manufacturing variability, let's say. But when we look at our studies across the world, you see many, many countries use typically three or four or five or seven different types of vaccines. But overall, country to country, manufacturer to manufacturer, We don't see big differences. Well, I mean, there are there are differences in very careful studies in bars, for example. You can show that the Johnson Johnson dose, which was a heavier dose, is more toxic than the other ones. You can show that. So there there are specific things you can show, but when we look at all the data across all countries on the basis of mortality, basically the vaccines kill at about the same rate, no matter who the manufacturer is, and it's always exponential with age. And it's always about the same rate of death. So the, the, my, my sense is from all of this that the variability of your vulnerability to the vaccine, your personal individual vulnerability, that the variability in that is greater than any effect of variability in manufacturing. You see what I mean? So how old you are matters way more and what your co, your comorbidities are matters way more what your own health conditions are matters way more than precisely what you're getting put into your body. That's my conclusion from looking at all of this, you know, just trying to put it in a nutshell. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's still very uh, shocking, diabolical. uh, I believe as well, you know, that uh, they, that, well, there's been so public about it, right? Uh, Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab and wanting to reduce the world population. And it's like, how can they be so blatantly bold about, you know, stating this, and and they're still walking around, Freeman? Now, with your report, you mentioned. Um, but but sorry, wait, Tanya.
0: Let me yep. wait. Let Tanya. Let me respond to that f- first, okay. okay? If you don't mind. Um, these crazy globalists, these elite nutcases, they love to develop theories of the world and what would be the ideal world for us, and what would make it <laughs> ideal for us and within that discussion they love to talk about reducing the world population they love to imagine how that could be done covertly or directly and that everyone would benefit and that's been around for a long time um just like any political theory about what would be the ideal way to live but it's always to the advantage of the person making the theory they they've always done that but um this vaccine from our study is not intended to reduce the population because it didn't have that big an impact on the population. So, so what we calculated was up till now the, this massive vaccination campaign killed 17 million people across, around the world. Now that's 0.2% of the world population, okay? So one in about 470 people that were living have died in the last three years directly from the vaccine. So you're not reducing you... the population. That's a lot. I... That's a lot. Oh, well, you know, I gotta criminal. stop for a minute. It's because this it, it, it's criminal this... and it's a lot, but um they didn't target a particular country. They didn't target their enemies. They didn't target a certain well, did they target the poor or did the poor the poor don't die more from the vaccine; they die more from the the COVID-imposed conditions and how they treated them and everything. But the vaccine is really about how old you are. So you could say, did they did they really think this is a toxic substance? So for sure, it'll kill elderly people more. So let's let's just go there and let's prioritize them. Did they do that? That's a hard one to. That's a hard one for me to swallow. That they would have. Well, done they that. may feel.
2: Financially, they're a burden on society as you get older. They're not contributing working with taxes. Uh, They're in care homes that are run by government officials. I don't know. I I still believe, quite honestly, it's all very diabolical. And, you know, I know early on when this started to happen, I was writing reports and the notice of of liability and trying to get people to be aware and not to take it for warnings. And uh, I think it was Dr. McCullough who'd come out or Dr. Bridle who had said, you know, if there are 50 deaths, if there's a new a pharmaceutical product and there's 50 deaths, it's pulled from the market. It's when you start seeing it on the TV, giving warnings and, you know, to contact your local law firm and actions being taken. And I know for myself in British Columbia, I was right out the gates, you know, um, in contact with the Uh, top commissioner, RCMP uh, commissioner, assistant commissioner, McDonald at the time, but now he's deputy commissioner. In June of 2020, I was sitting down across from, you know, the desk from him at headquarters and explaining, you know, the harms, uh, the fact that uh, they weren't providing ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, that they were putting people on remdesivir. And I stayed in contact with them. That was June 2020. And then moving into 2021, I was sitting down with the assistant of the crimes division talking about what Bonnie Henry was doing. AstraZeneca had rolled out. Sean Muldoon, you may have heard, he got eight feet of his intestines removed. The man's life was changed uh, forever, as well as another woman here in BC. And so where other countries were banning AstraZeneca, Bonnie Henry was going on promoting it and saying, oh, yes, yes. And you know, pregnant women should take it as well. Well, there were reports in the United States of pregnant women taking it and, and um, new mothers with infants, and the infants were having intestinal problems with bleeding. And so, to to me, there's absolutely no doubt that this was an assault against society at all levels. Oh, well, and all, it, yeah. it
0: was an assault. The, the question is intent, but it, there's no doubt it was an assault. As we said at the beginning, this was a military campaign run by the... At the to- at the highest level, I believe it was mainly influenced and run by the CIA and military intelligence, and and the U.S. has a huge influence on all Western countries and most of the world that it occupies, mm-hmm. basically Africa, Latin America, and so on. And so at the at the highest level, it was a military campaign. They they wanted to do this, irrespective of what governments or health agencies or MDs or anybody would say. They were going to do it. They were going to do it if it killed people. It didn't matter. They just decided this. This is what they were going to do. So I have no doubt about that, and I have no doubt that they were given so much leeway in pushing this that they also took leeway in doing crazy things with treatments. There was a, there was a lot more leeway than than should have been given for treatments. There were, none of the safeguards were present. This was a totalitarian military campaign it didn't matter what you did and the, and the and the and the health uh authorities were were part of that they were agents of that campaign they were criminal they were acting criminally they were not acting on the basis of science they didn't care about science no matter what they said they clearly didn't care about science or the truth or anything mm-hmm. like that so i i'm totally on board with agreeing with all of that um i just think that they're going to if they need to that that the organize the organization that organized that is not also deciding to reduce the world population down to twenty percent of what it is now. They're not doing that at the moment, okay? Uh, because if they wanted to do that they' they could be way more effective um, and it wasn't a weapon in the sense the usual bioweapon is delivered to a specific group that is your enemy and doesn't spread and can't spread okay it's a toxin or a very localized pathogen that cannot spread very far, but that's very lethal and kills everybody that comes into contact with and there are many examples of that historically and the Russian uh, uh the russians have given examples of when the americans did that maybe the us could give examples of when the russians did it i don't know but the russians have been very uh transparent about examples in africa where this was done and so on uh and in in other places in the world so that's what a bioweapon looks like it, you you target uh an enemy an enemy group or a very specific group and you deliver this 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 pathogen or this toxic substance and it kills um, and it doesn't miss anybody, and then it doesn't spread to your own soldiers and to your own population mm-hmm. so this was this was different from that, and it was but I'll give you this: it does make a lot of people sick and weak and dependent on the government, so it does facilitate totalitarian control of the population. if you come to believe that you have to be vaccinated to survive and the state is going to provide that to you. And you have to get a card and give up all your personal ID and, and, and line up nicely and everything. I mean, it's a, it's a tremendous instrument of control of the population. Yeah, and we know that's
2: where this is going too, right? Like towards yeah. digital ID and, you know, digital passports and all the rest of it. Businesses have to comply now. So, yeah, I understand there's a much bigger agenda. And this was not just a test run, but it was to, I think, initially get uh, get it started through the lockdowns. They were putting up all the 5G and and the rest of it to accommodate, you know, sort of those next steps that are coming next. Uh, Amping up the climate change uh, crisis and propaganda and, And you know, know, and, you know,
0: these (laughs) these propaganda campaigns, do you know where they work best? In the Western countries.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. We really
0: gobble it up. And why do we gobble it up? Because we've had decades of gutting the educational system and making everybody stupid. Uh, you know, nothing matters anymore. You can, it's not important to think logically, to be rigorous, to know about science and math. None of that matters anymore. You, you just have to, uh, repeat what you're told. And it's about indoctrination. And we've been doing that, uh, for decades now. We've been completely gutting the educational system. Um, and so it's not, it's not merit based anymore. There's no more competition really. Um, you you don't hire people on the merit of what they've done scientifically. You hire them for political reasons, what their stances are, just like yes. they select judges now, not for their ability to analyze legal cases, but for, you know, what what they're going to say about, I don't know, some social uh, aspect, right? Um, yes. It's it, We have been gutting um, our intelligentsia, the, the students, people the 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 smartest people around are the people who didn't get exposed too much to university or as you know a decade of university <laughs> will just destroy you they're the, they're the most independent thinking people in Canada i mean the truckers the workers the everybody we 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 still know what a person is and what a family is and and, and what we, what we need and what we want and the freedom that we want but the, as you get into the professional classes and as you get closer and closer to the globalizing elites, they, they become just, just ideological morons. Um, and they cannot judge the science. They're unable to. They're you know, unable to. I think to. that
2: you're hitting on something very profound there. <laughs> we <laughs> look at all of the doctors and a lot of them, you know, it's not even a matter, I I think in many instances that they don't know, uh, they want to turn a blind eye because they don't want to be reprimanded. They don't want to lose their job. Uh, you know, there's so many reasons why people have complied and gone along with this. Now, I I if, I'm remembering as well, don't you have a university or something that you were uh creating or collaborating with was that yourself
0: oh Um, yes i was involved in an in an alternative kind of university educational campaign uh you know i i have to put all my time into the scientific research so i haven't been able to participate but i was encouraging them to do it uh to Mm -hmm. have an alternative like that uh of higher education but i haven't really been involved with it very much no
2: No, and let's talk about your research. Uh, uh, Your organization is uh, Correlation, correlationcanada.org, I I believe, is where people can find that. And I remember one of the first reports that you did that that I thought was incredible was uh, providing statistics on how the lockdowns themselves did not save lives and being an advocate for the elderly, what happened to our children and uh, I think that was one of your first major reports, as well as masks. You've done incredible research yes. on the uh, on effectiveness of the masks as well. Is any of your research, like especially the report that you've just come up with, I know that you've mentioned you're speaking in Romania, and I know one of our viewers wants to know where that's going to be in Romania, but are you uh, sending this report to the RCMP? Are you sending it to uh, elected officials? Have you sent it to Trudeau and the health official? What's happening?
0: (laughs) At the very beginning, we were we were among the first to really react to this craziness, right? And so at the beginning, I was working with the Ontario Civil Liberties Association that I'm a founding member of. And before this is before our correlation corporation, uh, nonprofit corporation was created. And at that point, we were doing the research and we were systematically sending it out to all the members of parliament, federal and provincial in Ontario. And we were writing directly to the World Health Organization. And we were explaining that this made no sense. Here's the, here's a review of the science. This is crazy what you're doing. What you said about masks is nuts. You're harming people. Please, would you explain yourself? How can you possibly do this? And we would put all these letters on the website of the Ontario Civil Liberties Association. So if you go to OCLA.ca, OCLA.ca, and you look at the COVID section of that website, you will see all of our early efforts to reach out to politicians and uh, high executives like that. And when they responded, we put their responses there and so on. So we were really making a lot of effort to do that. And it was we didn't succeed. The the media were not covering it. They were not responding in a good way. So we decided, well, then in that case, our role will be to do the best possible science, to really do rigorous science and to go as far as we can doing good science, put it out there, and then let others pick it up and do what they can with it, you know? Right. I I know
2: some mm -hmm, will be used in legal actions...
0: Right, right. So I have been an expert in legal actions, and a lot of experts have used our work and have been inspired by it to write their expert reports in legal in in legal actions. So that's how we decided to help. And as part of that, we also try and make sure that we embarrass the authors of bad science that get published in the in the leading journals. We we make sure and embarrass them as much as we can using rigorous analyses. So, for example, one of our recent papers was to demonstrate that it's complete nonsense to say that the Nobel Prize winning vaccine saved tens of millions of lives. So we wrote a a report just on that, proving that that was complete nonsense, can't possibly be true. If you believe the study that argued that, you have to believe that uh, mortality would have increased tenfold, but due to the vaccine... It, it brought it back down exactly to normal. You know, you have to believe these crazy scenarios if you're going to believe what they're saying in these articles, which then the media and the Nobel Committee gobble up. And you know, the, the Nobel Prize was a, a political, uh, a political propaganda instrument, is all it was uh, to 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 justify this vaccine. So we wrote a paper about that. So we we try to have as much impact as we can. We try to attack the problems that are uh going to be the most important that are central to their argument, and we go after right. those yeah and
2: you've you've written something like was it a hundred peer reviewed studies
0: yes Is that in correct? my in my right. in my earlier days as a scientist, I wrote a lot of papers in many different areas of science, everything from planetary science to soil science to environmental science to theoretical physics about magnetism to I mean, I was a true interdisciplinary scientist when I was the the, the lead researcher in our laboratory at the University of Ottawa. So, uh, yeah, I've written more than a 100 of these peer-reviewed articles. And I used to be invited to uh, conferences to be keynote speaker and, and so on quite regularly on these other topics, you know. Uh, well, what you're showing now are the COVID articles that we've written uh, and that are on my website, and on That's that right. website, there's a research section that shows all my research areas. And one, if you go to research, you can see the um, different research areas. And one of them is, for example, is uh, climate science. And in there, there um, is a very important paper uh, that does the physics of CO2, which shows quite rigorously that even doubling or quadrupling CO2 has virtually no effect on the mean global temperature and it's done in a very rigorous way. So um, we did that years ago um, and I've also written about geopolitics. Uh, We have a very large paper that came out uh, which would interest you a lot, Tanya. It came out in 2019 and it showed the origin, the geopolitical origin of gender studies of the climate, you know, uh, propaganda and, uh, of, of, of anti- so-called anti-racism, which was not the traditional anti-racism. It was about language and it was about purifying the language as a solution to racism, you know? And so we showed the geopolitical origin of that and it, it, it really started, uh, at, in the early 1990s after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. The, uh, globalists decided, all right, now we'll create a new religion. We'll have, uh, globalized education on, uh, uh, it won't be women's studies anymore. It'll be gender studies. We'll have, uh, you know, um, all this new ideology coming in and it infiltrated all the universities from that point on. All the hirings were done in that direction and it transformed our world. And so I wrote a paper about how geopolitically, how that serves the geopolitics and how that was enabled by the geopolitical changes that were happening in the world when the Soviet Union was dissolved.
2: Right, yeah, I know it's yeah. funny because about a year ago, I had wanted you to come on the show, and you'd been so busy, and it was going to be on geopolitics. I still have the image that I'd created for it, oh, uh, but okay. you know they' yeah, yeah they brought in this uh you know very much uh marxist agenda, and as you say to. Create non-thinkers that can only go in one direction, uh, that become quite volatile, you know, in the position. That's one of the things that they're being taught within the schools and universities. And it really is having a very negative effect on Canada and the future. And that's one of the reasons Action for Canada does youth events, speaker and uh, leadership programs, is because we want to raise up, uh, you know, the next elected officials. And we have some tremendous uh, youth that have come on to the programs. And I'm really excited about that. But yeah, we got to counter it. We can't just complain, you know, about well, what's, I, what's I, transpiring. We've got to work to change it. And uh, we're making some very good progress on it.
0: I've written in popular magazines quite a lot. And one of the things I attacked viciously is critical race theory. Uh, that's yes. just an obscene point of view. And it's, it's, it's poisonous. It's, it's, it's disgusting. And but uh, people don't realize that a lot of uh, true anti-racism people from, you know, from from the civil rights era have been very critical of, of critical race theory and have written about it and were really critical of it. And but it just gets covered over like there's an agenda here and they just keep pushing it. But it is it is it is very toxic stuff. Yeah.
2: Well, I'm really excited because down in the United States, there's 26 states that are now overturning all of this global agenda and the Marxist agenda. Uh, you know, they are passing legislation against the SOGI, against the drag queens, and against critical race theory. And uh, uh, Christopher Rufo has had, you know, a huge impact in, in writing on this as well. And so I'm very excited um, in the weekly update that I gave before the show, how there's now five provinces that are standing for parental rights. And this is just the beginning of the unfolding like we see in uh, in the United States now happening in Canada. And Action for Canada is going to be taking some stronger steps against this um, as well on a, on the legal side of it. But I'd be interested in your paper on critical race theory because I'm I'm coming up to a point where I want to deal with that again. I'm dealing, uh, like I said, I- again, in the uh, pre-show in, in the weekly update is I've been attacked quite profusely uh, by the uh, natives, by chiefs. And by them doing that, I I was already very aware of UNDRIP and wanting to deal with it. But I've done this massive report now on it to show that the chiefs are working with the government, are working with the UN, they're exploiting all of the natives, and it's causing a lot of harm. And the underbed of this is then to create, you know, the critical race theory theory. And put it in the schools and pit everybody against each other. And, uh, yeah, so next week's show is going to be massive when I go through those reports. I was having an in-depth uh, conversation with Rocco last night in, uh, you know, addressing this as well. Uh, something needs to be done because through all of this support of the victimization of the natives, we have given them the idea that these chiefs and that they as a community have greater power than they actually, than they actually have. And it's been this tacit agreement that's finally coming to an end. Uh, Canadians are finally, finally uh, finding their voice on this issue. And that's part of that uh, military-style psychological warfare on all the issues that you and I have been discussing tonight and what you have been uh, writing on.
0: Well, the only way to have democracy is to have a counter- Force against this 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 dominance of the state, and that counter force is individuals who want to fight for their rights and families who support individuals and and organizations of free individuals and so on you 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 need to have that you you need to the 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 individual fighting for his or her rights is the counter to this disproportionate state power that wants to just completely, because there's, a, there's a natural tendency to want to go to a complete dominance hierarchy. There's, there, I, that's another thing. I'm in contact with scientists who study this, who, who show that society evolves that way and how you counter it from a, there's a theoretical physics paper that's very, important in my view and that I've talked about a lot that shows how society is structured and that gives you a really clear idea of how you move away from democracy. It's not the topic of today's uh, show, but I've given interviews about this. It's fascinating that theoretical physics can actually give us a framework to understand the bad places that society will go if you let it slip in that direction and it's, it's almost unavoidable. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it is. And then learning how to uh, counter that. And one of the things Action for Canada is doing, and I know you've been very busy, so I don't know how up to date you are on what, you know, uh, part of our strategy is, is to get into every single community. We're putting chapters in there. Within those chapters, we have parent groups, we have groups to reach out to businesses, to reach out to churches, and the community at large working together then, going to mayor and city council meetings, uh, addressing the 15-minute cities, addressing the school boards, and then getting elected officials from within those communities to run for office and supporting them. And last year in the election, we had quite a number of our chapter leaders get elected as school board trustees, for instance. And, you know, there's other groups that are doing it. And we just really feel that this is an important part of our campaign Uh, because Canada is so big. It's not just like the French resistance, right, where they could just do underground networks and, uh, you know, pass information and do their newsletters. we got a huge country. And that we need to keep that communication going. We could go by horseback if Trudeau wants to really censor us completely. We can go from chapter to chapter and get our message nationwide. And, uh, you know, that's part of the strategy of uh, staying up. Speaking of censorship, uh, you know, have you been, have you found yourself uh, being censored? Uh, Has your research been censored from, say, the Lancet?
0: (laughs) Of course, of course. Um, yeah. I was barred from ResearchGate, which is a very important venue for scientists. I was barred for life from it because I wrote a, uh, an article that was critical of the vaccines, and it generated some discussion. And they said, "Okay, we took down your article on masks. We warned you. Now you're you're saying that vaccines are intrinsically dangerous. Uh, right. You know, we can't have this, and you're you're gone." So they took me out of uh ResearchGate. Uh LinkedIn is an important social contact thing for professionals. They they barred me from that, uh and so on. And uh Facebook censors so strongly, I just I just cannot tolerate to be on Facebook anymore. Uh YouTube also took down so many of my videos, uh they are very, very nasty. And Twitter has never taken me down. I was, I was more careful. I didn't want to be taken down from Twitter, but I've Mm -hmm. never, I've been very critical of many things. I've never been, uh, censored on Twitter. So I still have that. And I've discovered Substack recently, which is a wonderful community, uh, to communicate whatever you want and uh there are a lot of there's a lot of people on substack that really like reading this stuff and they really enjoy it and they look for it so that's a good place to be as well but yeah sure i've i've been censored a lot um it, especially trying to get our work published in scientific journals um there is uh there's a, a mafia there that prevents it and but recently we had one of our uh scientific articles published in a good medical journal That's called PLOS One. They have published an important study that we did with uh, Joseph Hickey. He's the first author. Um, And that study is really quite groundbreaking. We showed that using the government's own epidemiological models, that the worst thing you can do during an epidemic to protect the elderly is to prevent their contact with the general uh, society. Okay, that's the worst thing you can do. If you try to isolate them... And if you try to uh, prevent contacts with the general population, then you increase the risk of them getting infected on the basis of the government's own models. And so we proved that theoretically uh, and unambiguously using their models. And that was accepted for publication after a long battle. Right. Um, well, because it was understood
2: yeah. that uh, children as well had strong immune systems and it would be beneficial for them to be near the elderly. And, of course, the government was giving, you know, the completely opposite uh, message to the public.
0: Well, this idea that um, if you're elderly, you're more likely to die if you're infected. Therefore, we have to prevent you from coming into contact with other people. That's a very strong idea in, in the health, public health community. And we showed that that idea, if you believe epidemiology and the, all, the models that you claim to be using, that idea is wrong. It's when you when you look at how uh, these things are believed to spread, it's better to have the the elderly in the community living among the community and having as many contacts as possible. That's actually better for them, not to mention that, therefore, they will not be isolated and there won't be all the psychological harm of isolation, which is tremendous.
2: Right. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. And and so, Denny, we're coming up to the, uh, we're just past the top of the hour here. But can I ask a couple of rapid questions that um, sure. I have that my, my team is sending me? Uh, somebody has said I'm a retired physician. In the past three years, I've seen a large number of people, including uh, his sister or his or her sister, who have been at uh, stage four cancer at diagnosis. I have not seen this in 40 years of practice. Is this due to uh, the covid job?
0: Well, let me put it this way. I don't know, but I'm going to use uh, um, all-cause mortality statistics to the best of my ability to find out if I can detect uh, the, and quantify that effect. So I'm Great. very concerned about turbo cancers, and we're trying to get as much data as we can and one of our next projects is to look at that in detail. And we've recently come across a very powerful database that may, may help us in a significant way. So okay, we I are working it. on it. We're working okay, on Dr. it.
2: Dr. Mackey, I believe, is providing a lot of information out there about yes. the turbo cancers and, and paying it's attention very to compelling. it as
0: well. His, his yeah. case studies and the things he reports are extremely compelling. And so that makes us, the, the statisticians looking at mortality data, it makes us want to really look at it carefully and see if we can quantify it on the population level. That's what we're going to try and do.
2: Okay, good. Well, we're going to look yeah. forward to that research. That'll be important. Uh, Mariana is from Romania, and she wanted to know where it is that you're going to be uh, speaking at In the at an Parliament
0: event. building in Bucharest, right in that okay. massive Parliament and building. And when was there's that again? A, there's a, huh?
2: And when was that again?
0: Okay, so let me get my calendar here. So we are speaking, the conference is two days, back-to-back presentations on the weekend of uh, the, um, let me get this right, the 18th and 19th of November in Bucharest. There you
3: go. Yeah, (laughs) and I'm speaking on the
0: 18th. And so that is the, it, it was, it's the International COVID Summit, the fourth one. And uh, that's what we'll be doing. So they have a website. You can find it if you Google International COVID Summit. You'll find the website and everything.
2: Okay. Well, our Canadian contacts are going to let the Romanian contacts know that <laughs> you're going to be there and we'll get some people out. Um, okay. So I, I don't. I just want to review my notes. I mean, we've covered a lot. I know one of the one things we were talking about, the journals and the Lancet has been so unreliable. But what upsets me uh, my doctor i haven 't seen her in years, but she's she 's not awake or at least she 's seen now she doesn 't even want to be in the hospitals anymore. I did have a phone conversation with her, uh, but I take a look at like if medical professionals are going to The Lancet, you know they see the nobel prize winning jab as as you know and that how it saved all these millions of lives and that 's why your research is so important to counter that, so I would really, really encourage people take the reports that denny has send them to you know your doctors uh help to educate them and counter the misinformation and the lies because these groups cannot be uh trusted i don't know if they're globally controlled but there's obviously a massive influence to stop the information from being shared so do you have any further to add to that right
0: well, it's so difficult most m d s like most professionals, are looking after their careers and are obedient and indoctrinated and uh it's very hard to break that. they do not use logic and science in order to decide what is the right position. They instead follow the lead from their from their directors. That's what they do, so it very doesn't matter what you say yeah, and the only and so way individuals therefore. <laughs> yeah individuals whether they're md's or not have to look at the clearly written science and decide for themselves and often if it doesn't make sense to you it's because it doesn't make sense <laughs> there's <laughs> so much garbage science it's just terrible um okay. but um so that's 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 all you can do is try to figure it out for yourself and then once you understand it explain it to others and so on
2: okay and uh, to share, get get uh, on the uh, Empower Hour uh, invite. I always write two pages. There's the Empower Hour invite with the bio from our guest. And then there's a weekly update page that I include to give you more information surrounding the topic. So please make sure that you go to the bio page. And on that page is all of Denny's information. Uh, regarding the substack, his websites, where you can find his research. And we really encourage you to go on there. Uh, This video is going to go out on Rumble and we get tens of thousands of views. We're going to ask everybody viewing this video to subscribe to our Rumble page, to share uh, this interview far and wide as well. Okay, so one final question Sheila has posted for me. How does the trends and statistics compare for those that have experienced COVID deaths Versus those vaccinated deaths in the context context of all case mortality.
0: Okay, that's I understand the question. What I've tried to explain, and I was very quick at the beginning, and the, you know it takes some time to really demonstrate why we came to this conclusion. But I have come to the conclusion that there is no such thing as a COVID death because there was no particularly virulent pathogen. And the mortality patterns and their temporal evolution, they demonstrate that there was no particularly virulent pathogen. So all the deaths are due to what governments and the medical profession did to people, all of them, whether it's vaccination, lockdowns, uh, bad treatments, denying treatments, all the excess deaths are due to that.
2: Right. I was going to say did or didn't do to people, right? Mm-hmm. By not giving them, like you said, the antibiotics, hydroxychloroquine, uh, yes. you know, instead uh, giving and, them the remdesivir. In- and ivermectin,
0: ivermectin, people don't know, know this generally, but ivermectin is a very powerful agent against bacterial pneumonia. So even if it was misdiagnosed and your respiratory uh, difficulties are from a bacterial infection, ivermectin is going to help you.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, this is one so, of the reasons why I felt 100% that this was uh, is a targeted t- attack as well, because they took what generally would have uh, historically been used to treat people with these ailments, and they started to ban it. They started to ban vitamin C, you know, and, and supplements well, and there, all the rest a, of Well, there's also <laughs> just, legal
0: reasons for that, Tanya, because if there is a treatment, then you cannot get emergency approval of the vaccine.
2: Exactly. Right. Okay. So right. they
0: couldn't allow any treatments.
2: No. Until later. No, it is yeah. so wicked. Well, I, I actually have one yeah. last question that keeps popping in my mind, and I almost forget. Of the seventeen million deaths, how many of those were elderly?
0: Oh, the majority, uh, because the, majority. the the deaths, as we showed, are exponential with age. So the great majority are elderly. That's the whole was, point. Is I, yeah.
2: I went on a speaking tour recently in in, uh, Ontario back in the summer, and every time one of my chapter leaders picked me up, they'd be telling me stories, oh, my three aunts and my uncle have died, and, you know, it was really within that category. Sadly, a couple of times, uh, the young girl here in BC who I met January of 2021, who had basically become paralyzed as soon as she had taken the jab, and, you know, there's other stories like that uh, that are definitely out there.
0: We've only quantified actual deaths, but we haven't even touched on the harms, permanent Mm -hmm. harms, disability, all kinds of harms. So many men have heart conditions now that they would not have had, and it changes your life. You can't do certain things and so on.
2: And autoimmune, and and the other thing is, is although you've given, you know, uh, right now uh, a data of 17 million deaths, we believe that's going to exponentially increase as, you know, these uh, terminal illnesses and uh, other illnesses now begin to affect people. We don't don't know the longevity of their life, and they may last three years, have a heart attack, and then, you know, the doctors will sign it, uh, you know, just say, you know that it was based just on a well, on a heart attack and never go back 3 years prior and find out that he'd been jabbed in well, whether and or not
0: that is true Tanya will be determined by analysis of the all cause mortality data and Right both sides, whatever you believe, they'll have to accept the data. <laughs> right. This so, research you know, is
2: going to have to continue. I think that's what, yes, <laughs> yes, that's what we're talking exactly. here, right? So, <laughs> and, and where would you say, in closing, like uh, final words, where would you say next steps are moving forward? Uh, what would advice well, be to our viewers? Well, my final words
0: are this. Um, I think, Tanya, your organization is doing fantastic work for Canadian society and i'm very appreciative of what you're doing i'm Thank very appreciative didn't. of the fact that you are fighting for these positions and you're 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 holding true to those positions and i can see that there's real value in that because um the world has become crazy with all this indoctrination and they've steered us in this crazy direction that is disconnected from community family individual freedom everything so i'm just so appreciative of, of the work you do. That's thank how you, I would Jenny. end. It.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that, and I know myself and the viewers. You know, if we were in a in, in a, a real life situation right now, I I believe people would stand up and applaud and very much thank you for the work you're doing. Please continue it because I believe that these legal actions are progressing. That you know we're all going to have our day in court. I believe that there's judges who care about their country now and are seeing the bigger picture and they're growing a bit of a backbone. Uh, We've been out there taking the bullets in the field so that they could come to a point. And, and I really hope and pray. And I believe that that we're going to see our day in court where all of this begins to fall apart and we will uh, seek, see justice. And I believe the research that you're doing is going to be an integral part of that. So again, thank you for coming and joining us on the show. I'd love to have you back, and we'll talk maybe about geopolitics <laughs> and some other things. <laughs> and uh, again, just thank you so much.
0: It was my pleasure.
2: All right. No day, okay, thanks.: Bye-bye. All right, well, that was uh, a wonderful evening. We're so grateful uh, to Denny for joining us on the show. The information is so important. Please make sure that you look up uh, Denny and his website. Also, on those chat links under the Empower Hour that I gave you at the beginning of the show, we will provide you uh, links to access his information there as well. Okay, as uh, I had mentioned, I'm going to be the guest next week (laughs) on the show, and I am uh, going to uncover this whole fraud that's unfolding. And uh, regarding UNDRIP and the UN's agenda and Klaus Schwab's (laughs) agenda that, uh, you know, he says you're going to have nothing and own nothing and be happy. And how, you know, what are the strategies going on in the background that are quickly unfolding? And specifically, my talk is going to be uh, about the uh, indigenous, the native community, how they're being exploited, how they're being used and manipulated to advance uh, the access of the UN and these global, this global cabal to uh, take our property and to take control of our water and our resources. I've written a really huge report. I am going to be launching that on Sunday night. I'll have a preview that I did last week on the weekly update to touch a bit on what it is that we're going to be exposing and these corrupt chiefs, what UNDRIP is about. It's going to be a really, I think, uh, a very important topic, and we got to shut this UNDRIP down. We, we, we've got it to uh, rise up in opposition to the treaties that are secretly being um, unlawfully passed. Uh, they're non-binding agreements. So uh, again, it's called tacit agreement. If something is passed by the government's and, like example of what's going on in the background right now, and if you don't do anything about it, if you don't oppose it, you're in tacit agreement. And it's just going to unfold. And you know what? You'll be complying. And, and we're going to refuse to do that. I mean, at a recent school board meeting in Mission, they're so corrupt in Mission. They're the ones really advancing the uh, SOGI that had shut me down in January uh, because um, on a Zoom meeting, I had had the opportunity to bring up our PDF of the sexually explicit and pornographic books. They shut me down. And then a month later, they ended up banning action for Canada. It's all unlawful. It doesn't bear any weight, but the point is the next day in um, all of the news reports, it said we were banned for showing graphic material. (laughs) <laughs> graphic slideshow it always just kills me every time I deliver that message it 's a fact it 's one hundred percent sure I actually address it in the uh, report that 'll be unfolding next week because uh, all the newspapers on the island comax Courtney Port Alberni, have all quoted the canadian anti hate network in this horrible action for Canada and how i was banned from mission they don 't provide the pdf they don 't provide the reason it just sounds real good if I was banned from a school board doesn 't that sound so impressive. But we're going to expose them. We're going to get the truth out there. Truth trumps lies. And the Bible says the truth shall set us free. And we're on a mission of truth here at Action for Canada. So I'm excited. Make sure you join me next week. All right. The Bible verses in closing tonight are from Psalms uh, 37, 12 to 13. The wicked plots against the just. And or sorry, the wicked plots against the just. You know, we see that happening across Canada and around the world. And it gnashes at him with their teeth, but the Lord laughs at them, for he sees that their day is coming. (laughs) And I'm looking forward to that. All right. The next verse is from Psalm 37, verse 28. For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. Wrongdoers will be completely destroyed. The offspring of the wicked will perish. And uh, you know what? We're relying on the Lord of this. We can't, uh, you know, we have to undo the lies of the left, we have to expose them. We're going to be doing that. And we're going to ask Canadians to be real critical thinkers and to have open minds about the messages and the information coming your way. So anyways, thanks for joining us tonight. God bless you and God bless Canada.